2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, what's next for the city of Stonecrest? After former Mayor Jason Larry stepped down earlier this month and then pled guilty to federal fraud charges, we'll talk with Acting City Manager Janice Allen Jackson. Also, the Georgia Department of Transportation is considering replacing busy intersections on, wait for it, Ponce de Leon with roundabouts. I'm excited. Researcher Michael Rogers, who studies transportation systems at the Georgia Tech School of Civil and Environmental Engineering, joins us to discuss what this is all about. Conversations that matter. But first, this May 2nd, that's the date judges say Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis can seat a special grand jury as her office continues to investigate former President Donald Trump's efforts through their mind, to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. Fulton County Superior Court granted Willis' request for the special grand jury yesterday. And now what does this mean? Well, it means the special grand jury gives the DA subpoena powers. They can also recommend criminal charges when an investigation concludes, but do not issue indictments. Willis is investigating investigating whether former, Trump, former President Trump and others broke the law by trying to pressure Georgia election officials to throw out Joe Biden's presidential election victory. In other news, efforts to reduce the amount of waste headed to landfills from the Atlanta Hawks games and other events at State Farm Arena. Well, it reached a milestone in 2020, more than a million pounds. As Emil Moffitt reports, the team has transformed the way it deposes of trash over the last two years.
1: From using utensils, plates, and cups that are made out of biodegradable material to stationing volunteers at trash cans to educate fans about what goes where, the Hawks have come a long way. In 2019, the team says it diverted only 10 percent of waste from landfills. Last year, it was 90 percent. The Hawks say the million pounds diverted included items that were recycled or put into compost. That total also includes things like merchandise, furniture, and appliances from the arena
2: that were donated. Neil Moffitt, WABE News. Speaking of things moving, a record setting 5.6 million shipping containers moved through the port of Savannah last year, a 20% jump. From the previous year, the Georgia Ports Authority said the increase in traffic at the nation's fourth largest container port is in thanks to high demand for consumer goods as the U.S. economy economy recovers from the coronavirus pandemic. Now, ports across the country have struggled to keep up. We know this. Savannah helped deal with the crush of cargo by opening up temporary storage sites further inland connected to the main port by train. And finally, it was a special day down at the Capitol earlier. Lawmakers were all smiles. Well, most of them were. Here's House Speaker David Rauston.
0: Today is House Panoramic Picture Day. So um, I'm going to turn it over to um, Mr. Pearl here shortly. And he will be in charge. He will have the gavel. He will have all weapons at his disposal to enforce order including preventing members from sitting over here and then as the camera gets over here, run over here so that they end up in the picture twice.
2: (laughs) Kind of like picture day in grade school. Remember that? This is Closer Look.
0: Support for WABE comes from The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF
2: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. In 2016, neighbors living in southeast DeKalb voted for nearly 40 miles of unincorporated land, roughly 20 miles east of Atlanta, to be incorporated into a new city. In 2017, voters elected Jason Larry, the city of Stonecrest. He became the first mayor. Now, let's fast forward to November 2021. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, while serving his second term in office, federal prosecutors indicted Mayor Larry. He was accused of stealing more than 650000 in COVID relief funds. Earlier this month, he resigned from his position and pled guilty to wire fraud, federal program theft, and conspiracy to commit federal program theft. He's expected to be sentenced in May and could face up to 35 years in prison. Meanwhile, what is the current leadership structure for the city of Stonecrest and pretty much what's next for the city? Well, joining me now to talk about all this is Janice Allen Jackson. She's currently acting city manager for city for Stonecrest and is the chief operating officer for the city. That's a lot. Miss <laughs> Allen Jackson, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm glad to come in and talk a little bit more about what's happening in Stonecrest.
2: Let's begin here because the Stonecrest City Council held a meeting last night. They all voted and agreed it was not necessary to set a special election date for voters to select the new mayors yet. I want to play what current Mayor Pro Tem George Turner had to say.
0: The attorney for the city uh, did some research for us in terms of the laws um, surrounding the election and brought to us three options uh, that we could pick in terms of when to hold the election for the uh, vacancy of the office of mayor. And uh, we had to honestly look at all three options, although it was recommended that we do this sooner rather than later uh, based on a lot of research from members of council, uh, members of staff, and uh, input from other governmental agencies. Um, We decided, uh, got a consensus amongst the council members that uh, it probably is not best uh, to proceed with this and the month of uh, March.
2: Now, Mayor Pro Tem Turner talked about those three options regarding the vacancy in the mayor's seat. Do you know what those options are?
0: Uh, basically, the, the three options that our legal team, uh, our city attorney services, are provided through Centric Denmark. Um, Mr. Winston Denmark presented uh, three options. You can do a special election in March. Mm-hmm. You can do that in May to coincide with the Democratic and Republican primaries. Or you could wait until November when there is the general election. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, the one of the key factors to consider with having an election in March is because it's a special election, nothing else would be on the ballot. Stonecrest would have to bear most of the costs associated with that. If however, we go to a May date or a November date, uh, we share those costs with all the others who are going to be on the ballot. As you know, there'll be state house races, mm-hmm. uh, the gubernatorial race, um, U.S. Senate race. So there are lots of other things on the ballot that decreases our costs. And it also uh, provides additional time for the public to get prepared for this. Um, we had several members of the public uh, issue statements in our public comment period mm-hmm. last uh, night saying that they uh, would feel better about a later election date rather than a sooner one.
2: What do you think? Uh, May or November? What would you prefer? Or do you just... Uh,
0: The council has not made a definitive decision, so I don't know which one of those dates they'll choose. Um, But it appears that with either one, I think there'll be uh, a sense of relief with at least some members of the public, knowing that they have some more time to really think about the process.
2: Based on Stonecrest's form of government, which is a council manager system, correct? Correct. That is correct. Uh, The city of Stonecrest, through your lens, do you feel the city of Stonecrest can operate at a high capacity without a mayor right now, city mayor right now?
0: You know, it's interesting that you bring up that form of government, and I'm a long-term local government professional, Mm -hmm. so let me explain a little bit more about what that term means. Um, Essentially, prior to April of 2021, what Stonecrest had was a strong mayor form of government, which Mm -hmm. is to say that the city manager actually reported directly to the mayor under the new form of government. um, and let's talk about how that came about the uh, council members actually petitioned the Georgia legislative delegation to change the form of government. So the legislative delegation had to approve the change in charter and with the new charter, uh, you have a city manager that is responsible for the day-to-day operations and reports to the full council. Um, this form of government is used in some of the biggest, most progressive cities in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, San Antonio, Texas, Charlotte, North Carolina, Phoenix, Arizona. I mean, um, this form of government where you have a professional, uh, like myself, who is responsible for day-to-day operations, is very workable, and that's what the city has operated under since April of 2021. And that's when you- so that means that the mayor does not have as much responsibility for the day-to-day operations. So it is much more tenable to function without a mayor under the council manager form of government than it would be under a strong mayor form.
2: And it was in April of 2021, um, you were confirmed by the Stonecrest City Council, uh, if, I'm, if I stand corrected, and after being appointed by Mayor Larry. And so basically all contracts must be signed off by you in, in a sense, but well, let me ask you this. Were there any red flags or anything that you began to notice um, after being appointed as it relates to with the covid Uh, grants, grants, and and the funding that you all received from the federal government? Did you have a chance to look at any of that? Were there any red flags for you?
0: You know, most of that was actually being wrapped up at the time that I came in. Mm -hmm. Um, Just so people know, um, I actually had some involvement with Stonecrest going back a few months earlier. Uh, Jacobs is the firm that had been providing all of the employees and services for Stonecrest. And I actually came on board in September of 2020 uh, to assist Jacobs with this project. Um, and at that point, I became somewhat familiar with the organization. Um, somewhere late in that engagement, I did that for about six months. Some things were brought to my attention that you no, know, didn't look quite right. Um, At that point, I, the city attorney, some of the council members were in discussion and that led to a huge investigation that fenton Denmark performed. Um, And that investigation was pretty much wrapped up at the time that I came in. Um, But um, I certainly knew that there were some serious issues of concern. But at the same time, I was willing to take on this challenge because the council made it very clear that they wanted it cleaned up. You know, that was not the way that they wanted to operate
2: with your decades of experience in professional city management, city government, and this is through your lens, could the now admitted actions of Jason Larry have been avoided or prevented with some with some simple or more thorough checks and balances? And this is through your and lens.
0: You have highlighted one of the reasons why I'm such a strong proponent of the council manager form of government. Um. If you have staff who are being asked to do things that aren't quite right, and that staff is completely beholden to one person, who in this case was the mayor, um, they either have to comply with the request or quit a job, Mm -hmm. basically. It places the staff in a very bad position. When you have a council manager form of government, you... Uh, don't take the the manager and the rest of the staff, therefore don't take direction from just that one person. So if there's something that you've been asked to do that doesn't look quite right, you have other bosses that you can report that to. Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. biggest safeguard is having a form of government that does not make the staff, in particular, the lead staff person beholden to one individual.
2: Have you had a conversation at all with the former mayor or when he was mayor, Larry, about
0: You know, not specifically about this. Obviously, I've dealt with him on a number of matters, uh, but not specifically uh, about this. Um, By the time I came in, obviously, his role had been tremendously minimized by the new charter provisions. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did not have as much uh, day to day contact with him on matters related to the Craig Cares Act.
2: Let me ask you this. How do you feel you all the city needs to take measures, whatever they may be? to regain the trust of Stonecrest residents?
0: You know, one of the most important things for us is improving our transparency. Um, And I think we took a step in the right direction from the moment that Venture Denmark released the report. Um, You know, instead of just taking open records requests because we knew there would be a ton of them for it, we just placed the document on the website. Um, That shows the public that we don't have anything to hide um, likewise, our uh, communications department has been very proactive, I think, in making sure that if there are things about our operation that folks have access to the information, my being willing to come on a show like this one and, and uh, candidly talk about where we are and where we're going. Uh, so we're gonna work uh, extra hard to just engage the public Uh, so that they can see that we're working hard to build their trust and confidence.
2: What's the temperature with the city council? How would you assess it? Everyone is on board, willing to work hard to regain that trust that we talked about.
0: Uh, They really have been. um, They have not objected to any measures and in fact suggested other measures to make the information public. Uh, Some organizations probably would say, oh, this is embarrassing. We want to hide this. But no, they're going to take this, put the information out there and work constructively toward uh, transparency, change and ensuring that we have a high quality government.
2: Under the former mayor's leadership, there were some development plans in the work. Uh, Stonecrest Development Authority, they had brokered a $700 million bond that was to be used for mixed-use development. First of all, do y'all still have a development authority?
0: Uh, you know, theoretically, we do. Uh, the council has not funded them in the budget. Um, so
2: Theoretically, they
0: exist? Uh, theoretically, on paper, there's the entity, but they've not met. Uh, they don't have any money and they haven't done any more deals. Does that kind of help clarify it?
2: Well, I also, also has a lot of other questions, um, but they are, you, well, you agree that a development authority is needed, but maybe not this particular authority development. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. What, one of the things that, that we have to be aware of in relationship to the bonds that you mentioned earlier, there are certain, uh, requirements in terms of documentation being submitted so the authority was to ensure that those documents the came in reviewed those and they were to ensure that certain timelines timelines were met in terms of future development of projects so if those commits are out, commitments are out there somebody needs to monitor those one of the things i also want to make real clear is that the development authority is a separate legal entity from the city of Stonecrest. Um, They had a separate attorney. They have a separate tax identification number. They are a separate legal entity from the city. So yes, um, authorities are created throughout the state of Georgia to facilitate economic development projects. And because those authorities can operate without some of the parameters that are placed on city and county governments that's one of the reasons that they've been created so yes they can be a helpful tool but they shouldn't be a renegade tool and I think an article that was in the AJC last week kind of pointed out that throughout the state there have been some concerns about some of the development authorities from the standpoint that they are going out and doing stuff that the cities and counties that they ostensibly represent don't really know what they've been up to.
2: Well, whether it's economic development, obviously, we're all still in a pandemic. We know that obviously Stonecrest is dealing with that as well. What are your top priorities as the acting city manager for Stonecrest right now?
0: Uh, My top priorities are make it through this transition period. Um, As I referenced earlier, Jacobs uh, had been with the city for the entire time that the city existed. Uh, We have now uh, uh, that relationship has been severed. Um, from the standpoint of they're not responsible for all of our day to day operations, we're bringing staff in house, so we're staffing up. So, number one, I'm looking for good people to help us get staffed up. Please go to our website. At so, y'all hostess, hiring is what you're ga. saying. We are hiring, okay? Let me back hiring. up because I inter- let me back
2: up. <laughs> I entered, I, inter- I, I interrupted you. So, y'all are hiring.
0: Yeah, hiring. I'm looking for energetic, smart people who really want to make a difference. So please check our website to see what openings we have there. And um, we are we really want to get ourselves staffed up so that we provide high quality services to the public. You know, we're a limited service city. We don't provide every single thing. We don't do police and fire, uh, but for those things we do code enforcement, uh, we do building inspections, business licenses, got HR, finance. Uh, planning, recreation, and parks. So, um, we've, we're we providing a lot of exciting services to people, and we need good people to help us do that. So, that's my first priority. Uh, second priority is getting an economic development plan in place, as you re- reference economic development. And you know, we've had some successes, but we want to have a, a plan so we know from A to B to C uh, where we're headed in terms of our goals of building Stonecrest.
2: For those businesses or entities that were, now use this word, caught up with the actions of your former mayor, how are y'all handling that? Will you continue to do business? Are you wiping the slate clean and saying, look, we understand this was part of something that wasn't supposed to happen. How are y'all handling that?
0: I'm sorry, in terms of businesses? Yeah, like for some businesses that
2: receive some of the funding. And if you read the indictments and the reports, then there was, a mandate from former Mayor Larry that 50% or some percentage, I don't know what the percentage was, 25% 25 percent, go toward his businesses or what have you. Mm -hmm. And then his Mm -hmm. church and goodness, there was a whole lot in there. Uh, How -hmm. are you all handling that? Are are those entities, are they like on a list, like a demerit list or do not do business with list (laughs) for city of Stonecrest?
0: You know, uh, we're going to allow the authorities to handle that. And that that's that's I think all I can say on that.
2: Would you like to be mayor?
0: I would not like to be mayor.
2: <laughs> I have never heard anyone no. say that on this program. You are the first person to say <laughs> this on close. You're Remote.
0: inviting the wrong people to your show. Come on. Um, there are a lot of us who just enjoy being professional managers. Um, I went into this business a long time ago because I believe in using tax dollars wisely and making people feel good about how their tax dollar has been used. And I can best do that from my role as a city manager.
2: You've done this for a long time. We've been having a lot of conversations on this program about some of these cityhood movements. What is your (laughs) one unsolicited advice to all these entities that want to be a city in terms of? progress and 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 that first few years what do you want to tell them what are those gold nuggets
0: starting a city is not easy number one um and number two you need to know why you're starting a city in the instance with stonecrest there was the feeling that frankly that that portion of the county was not getting adequate services and adequate attention from the cab, and a number of areas one of those areas related to planning and zoning. Um, if you look at some of the land use patterns, I would tend to agree with that. Um, we are now you know, trudging through the zoning code, trying to put some things in place that will allow us to better protect our residential areas. Uh, and when we say protect, protect them from noise, traffic, and decreased property values that Are associated with being located next to a junkyard or a mechanic shop. You know, there's a certain way to uh, use your land in order to ensure that uh, it remains attractive and sustainable. And um, that's what Stonecrest has um, one of the top priorities for Stonecrest to do. Uh, We also have concerns about public work services. I mean, we've invested additional dollars in right-of-way maintenance because we're not happy with the right-of-way maintenance that we've received. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recreational facilities that we inherited from the DeKalb uh, need a good bit of work. I mean, for a while there, every time I turn around, the hot water heater is busted and the roof needs to be replaced, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that We just felt like it was a responsible decision. I can see why those who voted for Stonecrest to become a city uh, felt like it was a responsible decision to kind of control your own destiny and, and do for yourself as opposed to waiting for another entity to do it for you.
2: Janice Allen Jackson, the acting city manager for Stonecrest and the chief operating officer for the government, city government. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for coming on the program and answering the questions. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank
2: you so much. Nice to meet you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Don't worry. Coming up, we're going to talk about roundabouts. Some of y'all have emailed me. Here y'all go. But before then, in 2018, in 2018, then Governor Nathan Dills signed Senate Bill 401 into law. Now, the measure was known as Aaron's Law, which requires students in kindergarten through ninth grade to be taught about sexual abuse. However... This curriculum does not require to include instruction about consent. Now it comes House Bill 857 introduced by State Representative Jasmine Clark, a Democrat from Gwinnett County. And the measure would mandate students learn about the role of consent in preventing sexual abuse. I had a conversation with Representative Clark earlier this month. Here's part of it.
3: So House Bill 857 is just uh, changing the current law around sex education here in Georgia it changes the requirements for sex education, not by subtracting anything, but by adding consent mm-hmm. to be taught to students in an age-appropriate manner um, in our uh, Georgia schools. And um, it is something that I, I think, um, it's one of those things where I wonder why we already are not required to teach these things, especially, you know, after the Me Too movement and just with so many things going on in our world, it seems like a no brainer that we want to make sure that we are equipping our, our students with the information to have healthy relationships and also to understand what is consent and what is not consent when it comes to sexual relationships.
2: Does your bill mirror any specific state that we can talk about here in a moment?
3: Absolutely. So uh, consent education is not new. Uh, We are not reinventing the wheel when we introduced this here in Georgia. It is actually uh, a part of the law in eight different states, plus the District of Columbia. These states include uh, Democratic run states, as well as some Republican run states. Uh, You know, it has been uh, passed by Democratic legislate legislatures along with Republican legislatures, and it has been signed by Democratic governors and Republican governors. So it's not a partisan thing. And this is not something, you know, that I just thought of on on my own. Mm -hmm. I will not take credit for that. This is something that we've actually seen across the country.
2: Let me ask you this, because even the definition of consent varies from state to state. Uh, And our research shows that California, Delaware, Oregon, and South Carolina name either consent, quote, or affirmative consent as part of their sex education requirements, but offer limited detail. Colorado, Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, and the District of Columbia provide a more detailed definition of consent. Now, in Illinois, their measure requires age-appropriate consent education and clarifies, quote, I'm reading here, that consent must be freely given and can be withdrawn, and is not implied by consent to a previous activity or with a different person and cannot be given by a person who's intoxicated or asleep. Let me ask you this, Representative Clark. How do you define consent and is this in the measure?
3: So for this law, because I am dealing uh, with a legislator, legislature that's a little bit less than friendly when it comes to uh, approaching sex education. Um, I have not con- defined consent, but uh, the Illinois definition that you just uh, read out is very much what I would hope that we would see in the curricula if we were to implement this here in Georgia. But by not defining it, we also uh, leave room for, you know, our school boards to find the best uh, sex education curriculum that works for them that does include these requirements um, as far as teaching about consent. Um, You know, there is a definition for consent. Um, Affirmative consent uh, is, uh, it's, it's, it's not one of those things where it's uh, too fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, you know, there is such thing as consenting, and there is such thing as not consenting, and what? that's what we are hoping to teach in um, our curriculum.
2: Why leave it up to the school boards, and why not have a state law that oh, well, clearly so defines? So will be a state law. I mean that, um, but that includes the definition of consent, like the other states.
3: So that's a really good question, and I think it boils down to what can we get. Um, done here in Georgia. What is something that I can reach across the aisle to my colleagues and, um you know and ask them to really consider this and really you know take this bill seriously because this is something that i i really think can pass here in georgia but also here in georgia we put a lot of emphasis on um local control um now you know that's arguable in other instances but uh when it comes to other education bills that have passed in the legislature um, some of those have been vetoed by our current governor because he felt that it took away uh, some of the control from our school boards. And so, you know, I feel like this is a good first step because right now consent is not required at all. The only real requirements that we have here in Georgia is that you teach about abstinence, uh, peer pressure, and also about AIDS. Mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, there's really not a there's nothing that says that we must teach consent. So I think we start there. But you're right. I would love to see a day where we really truly define exactly what it is that we want. Um, to be taught, so that we make sure that across the state, everyone is getting good quality education, and um, when we're talking about consent education,
2: well, you can't even get school districts all to agree on whether or not kids and, and educators should wear a mask. Exactly. Well, so- <laughs> that's
3: the, and that's the issue. That is the issue, and that is why you know making a law that is a uh, uh, more uh, more stringent. Um, almost, it's almost like it's DOA when it comes to getting hearings and actually starting the conversation around this. I've met with the chair of the education committee about these things, because I do think that this is something that we can actually get done. And again, I believe this is something that we can get get done with support across the aisle. I do think we can get bipartisan support for this, but we have to uh, be I guess, realistic in uh, what can and can't pass in the current political environment here in Georgia. I
2: have a listener that says, shouldn't this be left up to the parents or caregivers?
3: Well, so right now, parents and caregivers already have the option to uh, opt out of sex education if they do not like the curriculum that is currently being taught. But right now. Sex education is already mandated in Georgia. So, Mm -hmm. again, I am not mandating sex education. I am just saying that we should require that consent be taught as a part of a curriculum that is already mandatory across the state. The voice you hear
2: is State Representative Jasmine Clark, a Democrat from Gwinnett County. And we're talking about legislation this session that would mandate students learn about the role of consent and preventing sexual abuse as it will be part of sex education. Let's talk about that because the Georgia Department of Human Services says in 2020, some 8% of all the 10,000 confirmed instances of child abuse involved sexual assault. You believe that teaching children about consent could obviously change and, and, and reduce those numbers.
3: Absolutely. The data shows that when you teach affirmative consent, especially when you teach it during adolescence, that it will um, have an impact of reducing sexual assault later on in life. And when we talk about reducing sexual assault, I'm talking about being both a perpetrator of sexual assault Mm -hmm. as well as being a victim to sexual assault. When you teach about consent, you equip people to know when when it is okay To continue in a sex act but also you equip people to know when something is not right when this is not okay and what is being done to me is not consensual and so it really does empower our our children our youth with the information they need to have healthy relationships throughout their life
2: this would be what age group do you think this should start when we talk about consent
3: Well, I actually, so most states will say we start talking about sex education in middle and high school, Mm -hmm. um, but research actually shows that you should start introducing the concept of healthy relationships, even in elementary school, before students are even really kind of thinking about, you know, sexual relationships. It's important. And the, the truth is sexual abuse doesn't just start in middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually really important for even our youngest to understand when it's not okay for certain people to do certain things to their body. Have you looked
2: at actual curriculum from these other states? Uh, have you read the, the, the context, the language? Have you looked at textbooks or to, to see how this is being taught in other states?
3: No, most of my research has been focused on the, you know, peer-reviewed research around this topic. I have not delved directly into uh, the specific curriculum in different state, uh, curricula in different states. Uh, However, uh, I do think this is something, again, uh, states across the country, no matter what uh, type of uh, partisan um, leadership they have, States across the country do agree that it's a good idea for people to understand what consent is, and um, this is a a growing trend. This is something that has uh, been, um, you know, implemented. Uh, state by state over the last few years, because people are starting to realize, like I said, after the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. that maybe there is a gap in the education or the information that is available to our students. And we really need to be careful because sexual assault is something that follows you, whether you do it or whether you're a victim to it. Mm -hmm. um, It's something that follows you for the rest of your life.
2: And we should note that Oregon, out in Oregon, that these standards, they begin in elementary school with teaching something about personal boundaries. And then it progresses over middle and in high school when they're talking about consent. Uh, would you so elementary school? You said, but what grade level? I'm curious.
3: Well, that that's a really good question, and I think uh, the way it is worded in the bill, it does say age appropriate, mm-hmm. and I think there are age appropriate ways to start even in kindergarten. Again, with talking about boundaries healthy relationships. Because the truth of the matter is uh, when it comes to sexual assault and being a victim of sexual assault, um, it's not, it doesn't start at a certain age. Mm -hmm. People who perpetuate sexual assault don't wait until you're in second grade to do it. And so students, our children need to understand these boundaries again, in a very age appropriate manner, but in ways so that they are empowered to know when something is wrong or something is not exactly right with the relationships that they're having with certain individuals.
2: And that is Representative Jasmine Clark talking about House Bill 857, which would add teaching consent within Georgia's sex education curriculum. And last check, though, House Bill 857 has yet to have any movement. You can find that entire conversation with Representative Clark online at our new website, wabe.org slash closer look. Amplifying Atlanta. This is W.A.B.E. Call roundabout music. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. I like that. The Georgia Department of Transportation is considering major changes to one of Atlanta's area's iconic thoroughfares. You know it, Ponce de Leon. Do not send me an email about how to pronounce it because I just had this conversation with Sam and we agree that however you want to pronounce it is fine with us. The agency, though, the GDOT, is looking at putting roundabouts at two major intersections the first at Ponce and East Lake Road, the second where Ponce splits off into West Ponce and Scott Boulevard. Now, before some of you all think, I have no interest in this, not so fast. Roundabouts, depending on whom you ask, are awesome or a little confusing, and they can save lives. Our friends at Decaturist report that GDOT thinks roundabouts at those major intersections will reduce speeding and crash severity and frequency. But can roundabouts actually do that? Well, let's ask Michael Rogers. He's a researcher. He studies transportation systems in the Georgia Tech School of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Mr. Rogers, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let's begin with some definitions. Define what a roundabout is designed to do.
1: Well, a roundabout is actually designed to allow movement through an intersection by controlling it by yield requirements rather than by stopping requirements. And so a yield basically says that any vehicle approaching the intersection must yield to a vehicle already in the intersection and so that's the basic rule about how roundabouts work so they're really designed to uh unify the system not require any active controls like you would for a traffic Mm city and still allow kind of continuous movement through the intersection
2: let me get some clarity here is a roundabout different from a traffic circle or is it a type of traffic circle
1: it is different and it's really that that basic rule that we just talked about roundabouts follow this yield requirement many traffic circles like for example the ones you see in washington d.c are actually controlled by signals or other types of activities and so they have different rules they both have circular roadways but their rules on how they operate are different
2: When so I guess our folks over at G. Dot when they're looking to solve problems uh, at, at you know, because of reports at these intersections, high speeds and crashes. Then, then where do they start? I mean, you, you go to this this area, and is it just? It's not as simple as just saying, "Well, let's just put uh, a yield here or whatever." There is a a a method, I guess, into determining if a roundabout will actually be effective here. Take us through that.
1: Yeah, well, there is, and at, at very very high volumes uh traffic signals become the most efficient Mm -hmm. simply because you're looking at two major roads and especially with multiple lanes it becomes at some stage more convenient to have regular signalization on the other end of the spectrum roundabouts have a broad range of application but they do cost more than a conventional stop control intersection so if there's not a lot of safety concerns in an area not a lot of operational concerns. It probably doesn't make sense to spend the extra money to build a roundabout. But in that, in a broad range of applications, you've got enough traffic that you want to uh, produce as much safety treatment as you can, uh, but still not enough traffic volume to justify a full signal. So under these applications, roundabouts have proven to be a very effective way of both maintaining operations and improving safety.
2: Mm-hmm. Folks might have encountered roundabouts on smaller residential streets. These roundabouts proposed by GDOT would be larger, and these are busier roads and feature multiple lanes, to our knowledge. Does that, that, what, that's it, correct. Is, well, could that offer some different concerns or concerns from folks?
1: Well, it does. I mean, The concern always is what we refer to as driver expectancy. When you come up on an intersection, what do you expect to see and how do you expect to be able to navigate through the intersection? And so that becomes an issue associated with visibility, the signage both on the pavement and in signs to assist you in doing that. And there have been a lot of work on ways to improve the signage and ways to improve the notifications to drivers of how to operate them. And there's just an experience. The more people have, have encountered roundabouts, and so there's less of a concern when they pull up on the roundabout. that It's not something they've never seen before.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so that assists in, that, in allowing the vehicle to successfully navigate through the roundabout.
2: Let me ask you, what makes a well-designed roundabout and why?
1: Well, one of the major things is, is being able to identify the proper lane to be in and the proper movements to the intersection. But the key factor is being what we refer to as wayfinding—that That is, be able to find your way and to successfully navigate that with your vehicle without having uh, any additional stress. So if you're coming along and you have good notifications of it that if I wanna turn right, I should be in this lane. If I wanna go around to go straight, I should be in this lane and you have the room to be able to do that, you'll probably find the experience a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. If you're suddenly having to change lanes at the last moment, that's not good for safety and it's not good for sort of your emotional well-being either.
2: Well, <laughs> let's talk about transition because, as you know, we're... We, <laughs> everybody loves GPS. we all use that and you know depending on which one you use it, sometimes translating what is actually happening to the within GPS when you're looking at it doesn't actually reflect what you're seeing. So when we talk about transitioning from a big intersection to adding a roundabout, is there any way to avoid
1: major disruptions to traffic in the meantime? Well roundabouts can be difficult to construct. if they're in the same location. So certainly during the period of of constructing a roundabout, there's a lot of potential hazardous conditions that have to be managed in the construction phase. And and that's always a concern uh, in construction because we simply, in a major city, we simply can't shut down intersections and and send traffic somewhere else. So very often we have to build these under traffic. And so that becomes a major consideration. And letting people know how the, how the new configuration is operating uh, typically is done in a gradual fashion, as the roundabout uh, gradually becomes operation uh, in several phases. And so that becomes a challenge for the planners and the not con- contractors. But one of the things that's important if we talk about these two intersections, though, and why roundabouts are particularly good at these types of intersections, is both of the intersections that you talked about are what we refer to as, traffic engineers refer to as high skew intersections. That is, the major roads don't intersect anything close to 90 degrees. Uh, They they intersect at much closer to a 45-degree angle. And that has historically been a hazardous condition in conventional intersection. Mm-hmm. And it's a condition that roundabouts deal with particularly effectively because of the yield control rather than the stop control. Uh, there tends to be a more predictable way in which traffic is moving around. And as a consequence, uh, they've proven to be very, uh, uh, very successful at improving the crash mm-hmm. Uh, history at, at high skewer intersection.
2: And what we know from GDOT, there are about some 60 roundabouts on its roads in the state, about three dozen in construction, about 148 in development. So when <laughs> you reflect on those numbers, are we headed for a future filled with a, a lot of roundabouts? And what does this mean for road
1: safety? Well, there's actually about 60 roundabouts on the state system. There's actually more than 200 roundabouts in the state. Mm-hmm. including uh, local roads and, and private development. And, and yes, I think you're going to see more roundabouts. I don't think you're ever going to be, in my lifetime, at least in the condition of where most intersections are roundabouts in Georgia. But nevertheless, I think that there's a range of conditions in which roundabouts make a lot of sense. And, and right now, uh, GDOT, and I think other states and localities as well, are just looking at roundabouts as another tool in the box to say under which conditions makes the most sense. In other words, I think you're seeing what we generically call innovative intersections become more prevalent. Mm -hmm. And they're not just roundabouts, but there are a variety of other approaches, which gives designers a broader range of options in terms of dealing with specific conditions at specific locations, rather than building everything one size fits all. And as a consequence, I think, uh, it tends to both improve the operations and the safety systems if you've got the appropriate choice for the appropriate conditions
2: when we think of technology obviously and we, we've studied this we during our gridlock series what's moving atlanta and we we had conversations and went out to peach tree up it peach tree corners and we rode on the ollie bus which was the autonomous mm-hmm. bus and you think of technology and where we are um and, and roundabout's they fit into that and, and how and you've got smart roads where the car will the road will talk to the car. I mean, all that is, is is coming online now. And roundabouts won't disrupt any of what technology is doing in terms of how we get around.
1: Well, no, I, I think it just becomes another way in which which uh, we can optimize the transportation system. Certainly roundabouts are not appropriate in every condition, as no other intersection is appropriate in every conditions so i think it's important that planners and designers recognize that you know there's a range of options We need to to have the option both in terms of public input and in terms of technical input to make sure that the way we handle the transportation system is most effectively meeting the needs of the community in which it serves
2: That makes sense. <laughs> Michael mm-hmm. Rogers studies transportation systems at the Georgia Tech School of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And folks out there, you'd be surprised. We've been discussing roundabouts. GDOT is considering putting two at major intersections on Ponce de Leon Avenue. Thank you so much, Researcher Rogers, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good good conversation. Good information.
1: Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.
2: That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel or our other producers as well. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Right, Kevin? He always says, "I uh, Kevin Rinker. He's in my ear. You can't hear him. <laughs> A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look and check out our new website. Tell us what you think. And you know, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Yes, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.